0: We're going to dive into a brand new sermon series today, as we mentioned last week, as we closed out our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, that this week would start a brand new sermon series, and we're really excited about where we believe Jesus is going to take us in this study of Scripture over the next couple weeks. And we're going to be spending quite a bit of time in this passage of Scripture that I'm going to introduce us to this morning. We're going to be reading from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. It says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of being able to gather as a people. Lord, as we gather, we do so with the... Desire, the prayer, the intention to meet you, the living God. All we need at the end of the day, what we ultimately truly need is your presence. And we come to encounter you, but not just as individuals, we come to encounter you as a people. So, Lord, speak to us, meet us. Holy Spirit, illuminate the word of God for us, reveal Jesus in a fresh and living way for each of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, one of the things as I reflect about the history of our church, um, when I first joined the church, it was July of 2013. And so it was right before the one-year anniversary. The church was planted September 2012. And I remember when I first came in, It was a beautiful sight to see a church that looked like New York. It was very diverse. Um, But it wasn't diverse with respect to age. There was only a handful of people that you could tell had lived wisdom in their bones. (laughs) And that was a concern for me. I was like, this this can't be good. I can't be one of the oldest people in the room um, because that's like setting the bar of wisdom very low for our congregation. Thankfully, over the years, God has grown our church in wisdom and folks that have lived beyond our years and know things that you can only know by being around. And one of the things I love to talk with folks that have lived through life that have seen things, experienced things that I haven't just by the sheer virtue of their longevity is that they can give you perspective. They can tell you what has changed as well as what's still the same. And so I I love the conversations around like the price of things where especially now as inflation is on the rise, um, if you talk to someone who's been around long enough, they can tell you that in their day, that they were able to buy a house, a boat, you know, uh, uh, meals for the year and still get change on the quarter. You know, like, they, 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 man, prices have gone up. They can give you that perspective, but they could also say, you know what hasn't changed? This park has always been a place where people have met and had community. This school has always been a treasured resource of the community. This, this, these people have been an anchor in this area and have made – this community to the verse beautiful expression that it is they can give you perspective things that have changed things that have not in this series we're going to wrestle with that tension of there have some there have been some things that have changed with respect to discipleship when we actually try to define what it means to follow Jesus and we take the first century Followers of Jesus as a definition, as a standard, and we put it side by side with followers of Jesus in 2022, we have to be honest and say, these two things don't always look the same. There have been some things that have changed, and some of that change has not been good. But in addition, there are some things that have persisted. This should give you encouragement to factor this in. That throughout the ages, it does not matter how grim and bleak the world can feel at times. You know that in every generation since these first followers of Jesus, there have been people faithfully trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus and to serve him. In other words, God has had a witness of his people testifying to who he is. A people that have been transformed by his grace, embodying his love and his truth and his justice throughout the ages. And so what has not changed, and we're we're picking up now, the baton is being passed to us, is this desire, this intentionality to follow Jesus. And rightly so, because there has been no other life that even compares. That even if you don't want to believe in the supernatural claims that we believe about this person that we call Jesus... Even just from a historical perspective, we have to agree that his life was the most remarkable life ever. Because he continues to change and transform and challenge and and captivate the hearts of people. And so what we're prayerfully seeking to explore is what it looks like in this series to recover discipleship. Recovering discipleship is the series title because what we're looking to see is What has been lost from the first followers of Jesus to now? What do we have to recognize as elements that are missing, that we have to prayerfully allow God to recover them for us? But in addition, if we're honest about these last couple years, they have been nothing short of traumatic. For the last two and a half years or more, I lost track of time, (laughs) exactly how many months it's been, in addition to the two years, it has been such a blistering onslaught of change and trauma and challenge, where we've had so many moments of reckoning. And one of the reasons why we're not the only church that's prayerfully saying, what does it mean to be disciples of Jesus? There's many churches that are asking that same question because the last two plus years, if they revealed anything, they revealed that for us as followers of Jesus, we have been more discipled by our news outlets than the person and teachings of Jesus. That as followers of Jesus, our perspectives, our choices, our our values have been shaped more than by the news that we consume and the echo chambers we're in. And even though we both call ourselves Christian, our perspectives are very different on key issues. And both of us can easily try to co-opt Jesus for him to justify our perspective. And yet to both of us, Jesus is saying, no, I'm pushing back on all of that. And so our heart, our prayer is that we would recover what it means to follow Jesus and that in that spirit, we begin by tackling this idea of devotion. Can you say that word with me? Devotion. The first verse in this summary statement of scriptures, where it summarizes the life of the first church, and this is a summary statement that this is not describing one weekend in the life of the church, this is not describing like a couple months, this is describing many years. And so it's giving like a 30,000-foot perspective of, if you look at the life of the first followers of Jesus over the course of time, this is what their life was filled with. These are the characteristics of their life, their rhythm, their priorities. And the first words, it says, they devoted themselves. And now everything after that, we have to understand that everything that they did, whether it was fellowship, teaching, breaking of bread, they did it in a posture of devotion. And so but before we get into the specifics of what they did we're going to talk about devotion because that is the temperature with which all of this is being done. All of this is being practiced and embodied in a state of powerful ardent devotion. We're not reading a description of a lukewarm people. A people that had like tepid passion. No, this these folks were on fire. Their passion was brimming and boiling. And so we need to understand if we're going to mirror and kind of match and compare discipleship at this time and discipleship now, a key element to name, to identify, to lean into is that discipleship, part of the engine that's running it and moving it is this powerful thing called devotion. Now in order to understand this concept, I'm going to talk about devotion very lightly with respect to the first thing it says they were devoted, the apostles' teaching. I'm going to talk about that very lightly next week. Andrew, uh, Oliver, he's going to come and speak, and he's going to expound on that a bit more. But why I'm talking about that is because I don't want us to understand devotion in an abstract way. I want us to understand devotion as it looks like applying something specifically, and that's why we're going to talk about what it means that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, this is an important historical detail to consider. At this time, this was a moment in history where books, as we know them, actually overtook the usage of scrolls. For a long time, scrolls were the predominant way that things were captured, recorded, and preserved. But books existed right alongside scrolls for quite a bit. They were very different than what they are now. They were primarily like sheets of wood, very thin sheets of wood, often overlaid with like a layer of wax, and then they would inscribe something on that wax. And so imagine a book being made of actual wood. The pages were wood. Um, Not that mobile, not that portable. Um, you, You ever seen kids these days with the books that they're carrying to school? I mean, they load them like mules. I see my kids. I'm like, don't carry that, man. I care for your back. You know, just drag that bag. I don't care. I'll, I'll carry it for you. I mean, like textbooks. But could you imagine wooden books? But you know what actually caused books to win the day? I feel like writing a note to Jeff Bezos. You owe the Christian community a lot of gratitude, my man. Because the reason why books overtook scrolls, it was primarily because Christians preferred the use of books because this is what they needed. They needed something that allowed them to capture all four gospel accounts in one volume. And think about trying to do that through a scroll. It would have been an 80-foot scroll. Imagine the verse that it says, and they went from house to house. Who's going to carry the scroll? You can't do that. What house would be big enough to have the space to unwrap all the scrolls? The earliest manuscripts that we have with the the collection of the New Testament writings, they always had the Gospels paired together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as we know them. And so this is what's happening at this time. When they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, we have to understand at that point, they had access to Old Testament scrolls and they would access those in the synagogue. If they went to the synagogue or if there was a rich member of the Jewish community that had the ability to have scrolls of their own in their home, then maybe they could read them at a home. But primarily, they would go and read the readings of Jeremiah, Isaiah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs. They read those things, heard them read in the synagogue. But as this community of Jesus followers was forming, they would gather to read the firsthand eyewitness accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus. Could you imagine what it must have been like to gather in a room with others and possibly in that room with somebody who was alive there When they heard Jesus say the things that we read today. That was alive there when they saw him do the miracles that we read of today. You know, that's one thing that's very distinct about our faith. That it should increase our confidence in the the historicity, the reliability of the scriptures. And that is that these things were written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And so they weren't written like... Decades and decades and hundreds of years after the eyewitnesses were there and died, they were written and captured when the eyewitnesses were alive. So if any embellishments happened, it would have been caught. They would have said, no, that's not what happened. I was there. And what they were gathering around was these eyewitness accounts to the life and person of Jesus. So imagine they're gathering in a similar space like this. Or in a similar, with a similar intentionality like today, they want to encounter Jesus. And their focus was this continuous centering people on who Jesus is, his life, his teaching, his testimony. And they were constantly creating a space where people like us could bring our lives in contact with his life. And ask the questions of what does it look like for me to believe this, to be changed by this, to let this inform my decisions. And so imagine a group like this gathering in a home and someone say, man, this week, so-and-so really hurt me. I feel betrayed. I feel just so hurt. And I know what I want to do. I want to be vengeful. I want to get them back. They haven't seen the last of me. And in that group questions is, well, when we look at the life of Jesus, what do you think he would want you to do? How would he form your response? Or think of someone gathering and saying, you know what? Jerusalem is just getting too crowded. I, I want to buy this plot of land in Syria. I want to raise some cattle over there, plus the Bialis in Jerusalem are just losing their flavor, and so I hear there's a really g- good bakery over there, just, I need some space, you know, Syria's like the Poconos of the first century, and so I just need some trees, I need some space, and so oh, that's interesting, it's an interesting thing to consider, I, what does Jesus have to say about your financial decisions and The decisions that you're processing, and does he have anything to say? Is there anything in his word? Or they're coming and saying, I'm sick in my body and and I need healing and and I have no hope, and doctors and physicians can't do anything. Man, what does it look like for us to gather in the name of Jesus and look at what he would do at that moment? So, this is their life is continuously circling around. Centering themselves around the teachings, the life, the example of Jesus. And they did all of that at the fiery temperature of devotion. They did all of that not in kind of a sterile way or mechanical way or kind of a blasé way. No, they were devoted. They were deeply passionate and intentional. You know, the word devotion, some of the definitions that, that kind of give us a sense of, because it has many uses uh, throughout the New Testament. Some, some versions of it is like, it means the, the process of waiting on someone. So think about when you go to a restaurant, and if you've ever had amazing, like an amazing experience of service. Like, everything about it stands out. It's like, man, that waiter was so attentive. They knew I was thirsty before I was thirsty. Did you notice I, didn't, I was eating that bread and a crumb was coming down? I didn't know it was coming down. They swooped in and carried it off and, and they were just waiting so attentive versus the experience of not having someone being attentive. You, you know the difference. But another idea that we get from this concept, this word of waiting, is to be persistently obstinate. To be persistently obstinate. So, what that means is that, like, you have dug in your heels, you're you're you're, the line is drawn on the sand. You are not budging, you are being persistent in your convictions about this thing. There's a determination, there's an intentionality, there's a rigor to it. Another way of understanding this concept of devotion is to. Apply yourself diligently to something. This was the temperature of the first followers of Jesus. This was their mood. This was their rhythm. This was their vibe. This was their culture as the first followers of Jesus. And why I think that's important to name and to land there is that if we're not careful, in our day and age, one of the most common pitfalls is that we come to accept a form of following, of, Je- of following Jesus that is absent of devotion. Where lukewarmness is the norm. Where if someone is actually somewhat devoted, we categorize them as, oh, these are like the Navy SEALs of Christians. There's a, oh, there's a really, there's the one, the top 1% of the 1%. I talk to other pastors, and it's crazy how we can easily define devotion in these days. One thing I've heard over and over again, oh, this, this family, this couple, they're super devoted. They pro, they're probably in church like twice a month. And I'm like, this is a norm. Or no, this, these people, really devoted. They serve. That's good. Look, I'm not knocking consistent church attendance. I'm not knocking serving. Or another thing, oh, these folks, they're really devoted. They actually, like, give generously. They seem to honor God in their finances. They're good stewards. This is good. However, we have come to a place where we accept these normal things that for them, the first followers of Jesus would have not even blinked an eye, not even thought that this was exceptional. They would be like, yeah, that's common. You're, you're meeting the requirements. And now let me be clear. I know people that don't fit the description I just gave. Maybe they can't come to church regularly for all sorts of reasons, health reasons, challenges. Things come up and they love Jesus. They're passionate. They're devoted. And so I, Or they can't serve as regularly So I don't want you to hear in these descriptions like this narrow view of understanding what devotion looks like, whether you do this or not, that's the determinant. What I'm trying to point out is that we at the moment have accepted a bare bones definition of devotion that pales in comparison to what the first followers of Jesus accepted as normal. And now we elevate what's normal as super extra, Meanwhile, it's normal. All right, not so long ago, some, someone wanted to meet up with me. Uh, they were a minister. They were traveling. And so, like, hey, I'm going to be in town. And it happened to be on a second Sunday of the month. And now you guys know what we've committed to do, second Sunday of the month. What is it? There you go. Yes, extended worship and prayer. And so they were like, oh, what time can you meet? It was like, well, um, I'm going to be able to meet with you probably around, like, four-ish. I was like, wow, that's late. It was like, well, we have extended worship and prayer, and then I have a meeting right afterwards with a couple. And, and they were like, wait, 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 what, what do you mean? It was like, after your service, you have an additional service? And the, the next question was, and people stay for that? I said, yeah, man, it's pretty cool. They stay. And it was like, and actually some people go to the first service, and then they come back. And his mind was blown away. And I left that moment, one, feeling really proud of all of you, but also, two, feeling really sad that this was considered exceptional, that this was considered, wow, when it actually is good. I'm not knocking it, but it will feel very exceptional if we accept a lukewarm standard as our baseline. Where it's like you can't push people too hard because there's like a level, a limit that lukewarmness will only allow us to push so hard. And we stay within that band. But yet, these folks, they were incredibly devoted. I wanna give you two ways to measure devotion. Because if you're like me and you hear messages like this, it's probably stirring some questions and you're like, man, I'm devoted. I feel like I'm devoted. But if you're like me, you could also be very self-deceived and think, yeah, I'm devoted. But actually, you know, my devotion isn't showing up in my calendar. But no, no, I'm devoted. I feel devoted. I, in my heart of hearts, I'm devoted. You can't, that's my truth. My truth is that I'm devoted. But that truth somehow doesn't bleed into my checkbook and my calendar. It doesn't, but no, I'm devoted. You can't judge me. Okay, but if you actually want something to measure... Our devotion, so it's not just a fleeting that a fleeting feeling that we can't actually identify. I want to give you two things to measure devotion. The first thing is convenience. Convenience. Because devotion doesn't really show up in our lives till we're met with inconvenience and we rise above it. The reality is that most people are just moderately interested in Jesus versus being truly devoted. And that's, I'm talking to us who profess faith in Jesus. These first followers of Jesus, and this convicts me all the time. I'll share why. The first followers of Jesus, it says they were devoted, but we have to take note, they were devoted in the face of incredible opposition. You know, most of us on a Sunday morning, we face some opposition to come and gather with the people of God, especially in New York. It's not easy. So you face the opposition of the seven train. Like, I don't know what I'm gonna face. You face the opposition of of traffic. It's like, I don't know what lunatic I'm gonna meet on the road, and I might be that lunatic. You never know. You're gonna roll the dice. And so um, you face the opposition of what I find parking or the weather. I'm not trying to downplay these things. Or you might face the opposition of loading kids in a car and taking them to church, which, if you know parents in this church, When you see them afterwards, say you're the real MVP. I don't know how you do it. You're the. It's hard. There's so much opposition we face. Can I tell you? I'm I'm acknowledging that. I'm not downplaying any of that. But can I acknowledge some of the opposition these first followers of Jesus faced? In order to gather with God's people around the teachings of the apostles, they faced the opposition of potentially being arrested of not making out of that jail cell, of being murdered for their faith. They faced incredible inconvenience in order to be devoted. I'll give you one that's super convicting. They didn't have homes, most of them, similar to what we have today. you got to think about this. When Jesus is addressing the people that he was addressing in the Sermon on the Mount, When he's telling them, hey, don't worry about how you're going to eat and and the clothes that you're going to be put on, you know, where. He's talking to people that the vast majority of them lived on like day wages. They didn't have savings. They didn't know how they were going to pay for something next month, next week. And to them, think about it, Jesus is saying, don't worry. Man, I mean, only Jesus could get away with it. like, what do you mean don't worry, Jesus? You know, if I don't fish tomorrow and catch something and the harvest is off, he's like, don't worry, my Father has you. Jesus, these first followers of Jesus, they were, most of them were poor. Very few had a lot of wealth. Now, some of them did. We read that some of them in the community of the first followers of Jesus, if they had property, if they had homes, many of them were moved to sell it so that the proceeds could carry those that had extreme need. And so it was a crew of people that the majority of which were not wealthy. So they didn't have homes the way you and I have, and yet they were gathering in them. If there's anybody that should have empathy and connection with that Discipline. It's us in New York where our apartments are so small and we don't know how we could fit. It's like I could fit, you know, maybe one or two people sit on my sink. You know, maybe we could have a small group. You sit on the washing machine, you on the floor. Come on, let's get together. It's super small. Their, their home environments were so small, and yet the inconvenience of it, they still met. But I'll give you another one. For many of them, you know where they had their small groups at? In the catacombs. Underground tombs. How do you make that look nice on Instagram? I don't know. You know, like how do you actually come, yeah, the the Ravenswood small group, catacombs, like that, none of that is attractive, convenient, and yet they let none of that stop them. They were devoted against all obstacles, against all odds, and it's actually not that mysterious Why they were devoted in this way if one of their repetitive practices was to constantly come back to the teachings of Jesus, to the words of Jesus, because within their lifetime, they would have heard these verses said over and over again. Luke chapter 9, verse 23 to 24, they're gathering in a house and they would have heard these verses. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Imagine what our lives would look like if we were constantly returning to the truth of those words and saying to follow Jesus in a devoted manner is to recognize that when inconvenience surfaces its head, that's when devotion appears. It's easy to be devoted when it's easy. When there's no inconvenience, where there's no sacrifice, yet they were devoted. So in your life, if you want to measure your devotion, ask yourself, how often am I pushing past inconvenience? How often... Am I pushing past inconvenience? If right now you saying yes to Jesus involves no inconvenience, then you might not be saying the full yes that he's calling you to say. Another way to measure devotion in addition to convenience is consistency consistency. See, devotion is measured not just moment by moment, but it's measured over long periods of time. You know, one author, Eugene Peterson, described the Christian life as a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. What's, what's tricky about the verses that we're reading, and in the book of Acts, there's actually a couple moments where the, the scholars call them summary moments, where the chapters summarize long periods of time in a few verses. And this is a summary moment. Acts chapter 2, 42 to 47. And in these summary moments, you have to realize what we're being told and letting, uh, we're, what we're being allowed to see is the life of followers of Jesus not over a weekend, but over many years. They were devoted, and their devotion showed up in consistency. They were consistently pushing against inconvenience. They were consistently practicing the life and rhythms that they saw Jesus embody and call us to. How many are familiar with the name uh, William Wilberforce? If you are, raise your hand. If you're not, treat yourself. Go get a book about William Wilberforce. It's actually a really sad thing. If I say, how many know uh, Kim Kardashian? Oh, yeah, yeah. And that we get more hands for some popular people in our culture. Meanwhile, every Christian should know William Wilberforce. This is a fascinating piece of data. From 1780 to 1840, 60 years, he was part of a group that met every week for 60 years in order to see the slave trade abolished in the United Kingdom and all the areas that they colonized in the world 60 years every week gathering to see the world changed there is no real devotion without consistency is there am i saying we'll never struggle no I'm sure there were some times over that 60-year span that there were challenges, and and maybe some of those gatherings had barely two people in them, and and, uh, there were probably dips and dives along the journey, but it was a consistency. They, They were clear on their true north. They were clear on what they were devoted to, and regardless of how inconvenient and challenging it was, they kept showing up. What would it look like for us if we took on a similar posture when we look at the life of the first followers of Jesus and simply just kept showing up? Whether you feel joyous or not, whether you feel full or empty, whether it was easy or not, you just keep showing up whether you feel passionate in your emotions or not, whether it's, it's, it's light or heavy, whatever the state of your soul and your circumstances, you keep showing up. It's in that rhythm where devotion really rears its head. And that's where it's truly formed, in the fire of consistency. That's where devotion really comes to the foreground. And what's amazing if you consider for these first followers of Jesus, the fuel, the wood that kept being thrown into the pile and kept this fire burning, what made their devotion so red hot was again the simplicity of week after week, home or temple, gathering large or small coming back to the life and teaching of Jesus reading the gospels again and again and again because what would happen in the reading of the gospels if you if you notice the way the gospels are structured like narratively the majority of each of the gospels they spend disproportionate time talking about the last week of Jesus his life the passion week Think of what it's, what, how that would change your psyche, your emotions, your life if you were constantly going back to those moments in Jesus' life where regardless of what he faced, he was still going to the cross. Where he was beaten brut- brutally, where he was rejected in the most horrendous of ways. He experienced physical pain, emotional, psychological trauma, and yet nothing stood in his way to get to the cross, to die for our atonement. If that fuels you, how could you not be passionate? How could you actually wane in your devotion? How could that be our standard and us accept a standard of discipleship that's lukewarm and not intentional and not ardent? The book of Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hear this. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If you're in a space where your honest confession is, I feel weary. My devotion is waned. When we're talking about recovering discipleship, I remember how I was after Jesus before this pandemic season. And and now I'm barely making it. Hebrews tells us what has to happen is we have to fix our eyes on Jesus again. That when we fix our eyes on him, when we consider him, his passion fuels our passion. Our passion is a response to his passionate love for us. How could we choose to serve a Savior in any other way other than the way that he pursued our redemption, our transformation? His passionate pursuit of us is deserving of our passionate pursuit of him. As we close, as the worship team comes forward, I can't think of a better way to respond to this moment, to this idea of being devoted to Jesus the way they were, of recovering this aspect of our discipleship and to actually come together to the Lord's table. If I could invite us to stand. As you came in...